Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. In the course of its investigation into the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, the House Select Committee on January 6th spoke to hundreds of witnesses, including social media executives, with insight into the role that platforms played in propagating the false claims that motivated violence that day and in connecting and facilitating the movement and organization of people that sought to overthrow the election. One of the individuals that testified to the Select Committee was a former Twitter official, Anika Collier-Navaroli. At first anonymous, she revealed her identity in the fall of 2022 as the Select Committee broadcast elements of her testimony in televised hearings. Earlier this year, Anika appeared at another congressional hearing, this time alongside other Twitter executives summoned by Republicans to answer questions related to Twitter's handling of the Hunter Biden laptop story in the New York Post in October 2020, which has become a kind of totem on the right. In her opening testimony in that hearing, Anika summarized her involvement in the events of January 6 on Twitter and why addressing problems on social media is crucial for democracy. Here's a segment of her statement. If we are going to talk about social media in the government, we need to talk about Twitter's failure to act before January 6. I am here to tell you that doing nothing is not an option. If we continue to do nothing, violence is going to happen again. My background is as a trained lawyer and journalist, and my expertise over the past decade has been in the areas of media, technology, law, and policy, with a particular focus on social media and free expression. I joined Twitter in 2019, and by 2020, I was the most senior expert on Twitter's U.S. safety policy team. My team's mission was to protect free speech and public safety by writing and enforcing content moderation policies around the world. These policies included things like abuse, harassment, hate speech, violence, and privacy. So if no other algorithm or no other human could decide if a tweet violated my team's policies, the safety team policy acted as the final moderators. If a high-profile individual like any member of this committee or President Trump tweeted something controversial, it was sent to my team's desk. Every day, we had to decide whether a particular piece of content equated to yelling fire in a crowded theater. My work at Twitter and subsequently at Twitch put me in the middle of key events in history. What I've learned from them is that social media played and continues to play a role in these events. And two years after January 6th, we still need to better understand the role that Twitter played in order to prevent it from happening again. So what do we need to understand? First, Twitter's leadership bent and broke their own rules in order to protect some of the most dangerous speech on the platform. I'm going to talk a little bit about what happened in the months leading up to January 6th. During this time, my team worked to try to minimize the threat of violence that we saw coming. After President Trump instructed the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by in a debate, we considered the danger that that statement would have if it was tweeted. So we crafted what we called a coded incitement to violence policy to address dog whistles like this. Instead of approving it, 
management bent over backwards to find ways to not approve it. On January 5th, when the policy was still not approved, I led a meeting where one of my colleagues asked management whether someone was going to have to get shot before we were allowed to take down tweets. Another colleague looked up live tweets and read them to management to try to convince them of the seriousness of the issue. Still, no action was taken. On the morning of January 6th, I sent Twitter lawyers a message warning them that our team was hamstrung by leadership. Two days later, when it looked like it was going to happen all over again, I asked management whether they wanted more blood on their hands. Only then did they act. The second problem is that there is way too much power concentrated in the hands of too few. With January 6th and many other decisions, content moderators like me did the very best that we could. But far too often, there are far too few of us, and we are being asked to do the impossible. For example, in January, 20th, January 2020, after the U.S. assassinated an Iranian general and the U.S. president decided to justify it on Twitter, management literally instructed me and my team to make sure that World War III did not start on the platform. No person, people, or company should have that kind of unchecked power or that kind of responsibility. The modern-day public conversation should not be susceptible to the whims of any one individual or any one company. Fixing the systemic issues that lead to bad decisions is not going to be easy, but people like me who have been in the trenches can help lead the way. But I must say, coming forward and offering this information is risky and it is difficult. Doxing and harassment are real and people are afraid to tell what they know. So we need to make sure that there are protections for those who speak the truth. We need to create space to hear from people on the front lines. We need to give them protection so they can share their experiences. Only then can we begin to understand the full scope of the problem and to find solutions. There is far too much at stake for us to do nothing. Thank you. I had a chance to speak with Anika earlier this month to hear how her thinking has evolved in this time under the spotlight and what she's hoping to do next to continue her journey as an intellectual and an activist on these issues. Anika, we're going to talk about your career, uh, the experience you've had over the last year, year and a half, and some of the thinking that you're doing lately on the topics that you've been working on for quite some time. But for my listener, can you just describe your career trajectory? You ended up most, I guess, uh, prominently as a, a sort of executive at Twitter, came to national attention during the hearings of the January 6th Select Committee. But joining that technology company for you was part of an intellectual journey? Twitter was just one stop on my way. I've also had a, you know, another job and a whole other career after Twitter. But this started for me many, many years ago. I remember back in the early 2000s. I was a high school senior and I was in a debate class and I went to Washington, D.C. for the very first time to talk in this, it's so nerdy, the simulated congressional hearing. Um, and the topic that I was obsessed with was the First Amendment and the limits that could be placed onto it. So I've been doing this, you know, congressional hearing about free expression for um, a little while, actually. And from high school, I 
went and got my undergraduate degree at the University of Florida, um, where I studied journalism. Um, and I worked at a newsroom that actually turned digital the summer that I worked there. And I became really obsessed with these kind of questions about how free speech that was built on this like printing press was ever going to be able to, you know, transition into like MacBooks and InDesign and the way that, you know, media was being processed um, and these brand new things called social media at the time, right? This was back when Facebook required a .edu account and it was the hottest thing on the streets. Um, and so I, I took that sort of interest and love and went to law school um, at the University of North Carolina. Um, and there I really continued to study what at the time was called cyber law, right? It, it was this really like niche area of also called media law. I worked for the UNC Center for Media Law and Policy and was really kind of honing in on these questions, trying to figure out how this new technology was really going to change you know, our lives and really how we were going to implement these constitutional principles like free expression within these emerging technologies. Um, I then went and got my master's and specifically studied Twitter and social movements that were happening on Twitter at the time was, you know, the Arab Spring was happening and Occupy Wall Street was happening. And there was this case of first impression with Twitter, with Occupy Wall Street, where they were trying to, you know, ask for user data and information to be able to identify where a protester was. And I was obsessed with figuring out how this, these new social movements and these idea of constitutional rights were going to be able to expand again into social media. And at the time, people thought I was um, a little nuts, to be honest with you. Um, and we're like, are you sure this is going to, This it wasn't a thing, right? Trust and safety teams weren't a thing. Content moderation, you know, commercial content moderation didn't have a name, right? It was, and I was obsessed with this thing. And I realized that, you know, I graduated and there were no jobs really in the field. Um, and so I went and I worked at two different law firms and I kept my eyes open and I was, you know, I had this really unique sort of skill set. And then this job opened up at this new think tank called Data and Society back in the day. Um, and I applied to head up their work specifically looking at, you know, big, big data. That was like was the, the hot term of the day back then. Um, big data and civil rights and fairness. And so, you know, these were our very early ideas and understandings of technology not being neutral and questioning algorithmic bias and fairness and looking at you know, emerging technology, this was also the time of, you know, the first BLM uprising. So a lot of new policing technologies and thinking about policy implications of things like body-worn cameras. Um, and then I work, went and worked at an advocacy organization. Um, and, you know, actually one of my jobs there, I, I went to Twitter um, and spoke to the vice president, um, Del Harvey, and was saying, you know, these these laws that you have, these laws, <laughs> these policies, which, you know, are basically the laws of social media companies, you know, I, I was questioning the way that they were implemented and the way that they were being written and the gaps that existed there. And I remember specifically her asking me, you know, well, okay, if we have all these problems, how do we fix it? And I didn't know. And I didn't have the answer because I realized I had no idea you know, how the machine works or how Twitter worked or what the levers could be pulled to actually make the sort of change happen. Um, and so, you know, a couple of years later, I joined the team at Twitter um, and started doing those things. So what happened then, of course, is that you found yourself obviously at the center of a lot of the questions that were coming to the fore in the 2020 election cycle and shortly thereafter. And then, of course, you came on the national stage first anonymously and then attributed 
by the January 6th committee as as one of the whistleblowers, essentially, who came forward uh, from Twitter. My listeners can go back and read your deposition. They can watch the video of your a lot of testimony. Pages. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we're not going to go through the ins and outs of all of that. But can you just tell me what it was like this last couple of years in the wake of leaving Twitter, going through the process of testifying and you know, becoming a public figure in this way. What's that been like? It's been, I think, life changing is really the the best way to describe it. Everything about my life has kind of um, been put in a blunder and and spit out. You know, I I worked in in companies and jobs that were very low key, and you know, we the way do the nature of our jobs. We were kind of ghosts to begin with. Um, and then I started whistleblowing and, you know, be, had to live an even more kind of secretive life, right? Doing, especially anonymously, right? I was doing something that was not public that I couldn't really speak about. You know, it was it was really difficult. I, I think I described it in the Washington Post headline was like terrifying, right? And it was, it was absolutely terrifying. It was absolutely isolating to have to sit down and realize and look back on moments and realize, hey, like this was really important. Oh my gosh, I can't believe this is what happened. And then have to come to the realization of it's important for these things to be known and for the truth to be on the record and to sit there and say, somebody should say something, right? And then to keep looking around and realize that like, well, the someone is you, right? And, And it's up to you to be the person who says something. And so it is, it has absolutely changed, you know, the trajectory of my career. I was, you know, working within trust and safety departments. I was working, I was working at Twitch, you know, in the policy department as a senior expert while I was whistleblowing, right? And so it was difficult and it took a lot of energy and it still takes a lot of energy. And uh, I think it was worth it, right? I, I look back and I kind of describe it and think about it as, you know, I had these moments in time where I would look and think like, wow, this seems to be important or like this, I think that this might be historical. And I have had to ask myself, you know, when history looks back at this moment, who do you want to be, right? And having to rise to the occasion and rise to those moments um, and meet those moments as they come has been it's been tremendous. It has changed, you know, my outlook on life, the way I I walk around, the way I'm able to walk around. And it has also allowed, you know, a conversation to happen. Since your testimony uh, and in just the last few months, some of the decisions that your team took and that ultimately Twitter took following the January 6th insurrection to deplatform Donald Trump. Uh, that decision, of course, uh, was reversed, not just at Twitter, but also at Facebook, at YouTube. And this conversation that we've been having around the boundaries of free expression, protecting people from potential harm, violence as a result of cascades of communication across social media platforms, we're still very much having this conversation right now. I want to just kind of open that up a little bit maybe get your reflections now, both looking back, but also looking forward. On some level, it's a moment of retrenchment. You know, we're kind of seeing social media platforms pull back from some of the practices that they engaged in, you know, during the 2020 election cycle, during COVID. A lot of critique that's come from First Amendment absolutists 
about some of their practices. What do you make of this moment? I think we're in a really important moment, right? I think we're in this moment that's right before, you know, leading up to another historic election. And it honestly feels a lot like deja vu because having been a person who has been in the moment right before the election, you know, I'm I'm seeing a lot of the exact same things. And, you know, you mentioned this sort of replatforming um, that has happened. And, you know, I wrote the op-ed that you all published specifically thinking and talking about how these decisions, I believe, are dangerous, right? And they are, I believe, ahistorical and not taking into account, you know, not just the testimony that I gave to Congress, but Congress's own investigation that wasn't released and the information that was included within it. And so I think that it is, it's an important time and it's also a very scary time. You mentioned the sort of retrenchment. And I I think, you know, part of the goal and why I wanted to talk about January 6th and make sure that we got this on the record was to understand the sort of failures that happened to make sure that they wouldn't happen again. And I am increasingly concerned that that is not happening, right? Because, you know, my testimony and the things that I said were all about, you know, filling the gaps in policies and making sure that uh, policies were enforced. And we're now living in a world where the people who had my jobs no longer have jobs, right? There have been layoffs across the industry. Um, and so not only do we have a policy problem where the the rules that are written on the books have gaps that don't account for the way that, you know, conversations have and political conversations have been happening for the past several years. Um, we also don't have individuals who are there to make these arguments. We don't have content moderators around the world anymore who are, who are able to look at these things and make these sort of nuanced arguments. We don't have the safety staff. Um, and so it is, it's really concerning to me to see where we're at and to especially think about where this could lead for the future. You know, on the one hand, we seem to have a kind of environment where social media platforms are making decisions about questions like whether to replatform Donald Trump based on a set of things, right? What is the threat scenario presently? How great is the risk of potential civil unrest? That seems to be part of the consideration. The other is, you know, based on whether they feel they can judge his individual utterances or the utterances of any other demagogue for that matter. And you know, assess whether those are appropriate to their policies. What's missing here? What's missing in this kind of equation for you? Part of your testimony, you talked a lot about coded incitement to violence. You seem to be kind of hinting at signals you were able to see on the platform of mounting signals of potential violence, something that went beyond just speech, but became a kind of collective physics, if you will. You talked a little bit about sort of the boundaries around free expression and, you know, just to say like very clearly and loudly, you know, according to to First Amendment jurisprudence, the, the First Amendment has never been absolute, right? There have always been limitations um, to free speech and free expression. 
And one of those that has existed is incitement to imminent lawless action or to riot, right? And that is what we saw happen on January 6th. And so I think a lot of these arguments around free speech and free expression are disingenuous and that they don't take that into account and they don't argue the reality and understand the reality of that. There is this limit and it's specifically called out within our jurisprudence with our understanding of the First Amendment. And that's what happened within this day. And I think in addition to, you know, the eminent lawless action and this very sort of explicit incitement is what, you know, we called coded incitement to violence. And so specifically this sort of you know, Ian Lopez wrote the book Dog Whistle Politics, right? So these, this language or this sort of rhetoric that signals to those who understand and can receive what is being signaled information. And within this case, you know, signaling information about political violence. And that has been something that not only happened and that I talked to Congress about, you know, we saw leading up into um, January 6th, but it's something that we're seeing continue to happen today, right? And we are continuing to see, you know, members of Congress uh, make veiled threats for, you know, what, what are they calling it? A um, national divorce, right? You know, just a a rebranded, you know, recalling for a civil war, right? Which is outrageous, right? And it, it is being allowed and continued in this sort of, again, this rhetoric that we are hearing once again from, you know, Donald Trump himself, specifically in reference to um, his indictments and the, the the legal cases that he is facing. It is very much mirroring exactly what we saw in the lead up um, to January 6th. Part of your idea here about coded incitement it's not so much even just the words that someone is saying, uh, whether those you know directly lead to violence. So if I say, you know, go ye forth, ye who follow me, and commit this act on my behalf, that's one way of thinking about it. You're suggesting that we take into consideration the now legible to us response of an audience or a following, uh, and that's part of what you were seeing at Twitter. So you would see when a political leader, you know, said certain things that his followers or her followers would hear those things in certain in a certain way. And you're suggesting that we should basically take that into account when we make decisions about how to moderate content? Absolutely, right? You know, conversation and communications does not happen within a vacuum. You have the very basic you know, communication triangle, right? Like the information goes someplace, it's received somewhere and someone responds to it. And so looking at just one piece of communication is problematic. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I talked to about to Congress and, you know, was was very, very visible. And I don't think we talk a lot about is the response that was happening to Donald Trump's rhetoric on January 8th. Right. Um, and so this was the day that he was permanently suspended from the the platform. And what we saw occurring that day and what I told Congress and talked to them about was we saw this exact sort of language that had been coming up to January 6th start all over again. But this time, instead of hashtag J6, it was hashtag J17th. 
And so from our vantage point, we were seeing individuals planning again for honestly what looked like another insurrection. And a lot of the commentary that we were seeing were things like people saying, you know, I wasn't able to attend last time, now I can make it. Um, And so this conversation was happening not just about going to Washington, D.C., but to state capitals all over the world, right? And so by taking this into consideration and looking at this, we were making the argument that this is going to happen again, right? And it was only by seeing the responses to Donald Trump, you know, saying things about, you know, the however many American patriots, right? It was it was that sort of coded language. And it was the way that it was received that was saying people saying, we're going to respond with violence, right? And it was that it was absolutely necessary, in my opinion, to understand the response and the way that people hear things and the way that they are going to react to them, right? It's it's incitement to to violence, right? So yeah, it's not just the words, but it is very much the way that it is received, the way that it is responded to, because in those situations, I think incitement is a really, really hard thing, right? Like typically we'd have to sit there and say, is this going to lead to violence, right? It's sort of this prediction. We want to stop something before it happens. I think, you know, on January 6th, we had, it's one of the clearest cases of incitement that we've ever had, right? We, we, We saw it happening and then it happened. And then on January 8th, it was, is it going to happen again, right? And I think we were able to learn, thankfully, in that moment from history to make sure that it didn't happen again. Do you think the law is set up to essentially do this type of analysis? I mean, we've got the Brandenburg test. We've got, you know, other legal precedent. You know, you're talking about almost kind of like a mathematics uh, or a threshold where if a certain following or kind of political group is hearing instructions, even if they're not being uttered in, you know, a semantically obvious uh, fashion, that perhaps there should be action taken by uh, private platforms to step in and perhaps try to mute or otherwise kind of interfere in that cascading effect uh, that we saw happen before January 6th. I don't know. It's, is there a legal analysis here or is this mostly about the decisions of private platforms? Is that what you're arguing for? I think it's all of the above, right? So the, the legal analysis is is something that doesn't come directly from me, right? There's, you know, the, the robot plan of action that has existed for quite some time that talks specifically about things like intent and impact and the way that communication happens, right? And the sort of uh, balancing test, which I think is very, very hard to do. And I will acknowledge it's very, very difficult to do. Um, The other thing that I have constantly advocated for, especially as we think about free expression, is asking these questions of, you know, free expression for whom and safety for whom. And so no longer just taking the sort of, you know, power blind approach to things and recognizing that when decisions are being made, inevitably we are allowing free expression to exist at the expense of someone's safety. Um, And then we are also allowing someone's safety at times to be put in jeopardy at the allowance of someone's free expression. And I think making these decisions without being cognizant that that is happening and to whom creates very, very dangerous situations that are consistently reinforcing, you know, problematic power dynamics. 
if you were to go back into another social media platform at this moment in time, and they gave you the reins of the trust and safety (laughs) department, what would you do? What type of process or procedure would you put in place right now that would potentially protect from these types of events? I will be really honest with you and say that part of what I am reckoning with, and I think, you know, the whole industry is is really reckoning with is, is the question of whether being the person in the head of the trust and safety department is the way to make these decisions or the way to make these changes, right? I think that self-regulation has only gotten us so far. And so for me, I think a lot of this question is, you know, should the reins be put in the hands of someone else? Um, Because we have seen how irresponsibly they have been wielded within the hands of social media companies. So um, all that to say, I I don't know, right? I, 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 I don't know. You know, one of the things that comes through in your testimony and in your thinking around coded incitement is that there is an analysis that is a race analysis here. I want to ask you just to kind of expound on that a little bit. Some of your work prior had been looking at, you know, questions specifically around race, uh, questions about representation in media. And part of this coded incitement to violence, you know, question, you know, you have to kind of, as I understand it, look at it in a sort of historical context. Um, Yeah. the, The January 6th insurrection was not just an insurrection. It was in many ways, a white supremacist insurrection. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, there's there's documentaries that have been made linking January 6th to, you know, other domestic terrorist events that have been perpetrated by by white supremacists. And, you know, the book I mentioned, uh, Dog Whistle Politics, that book, in addition to uh, Michelle Alexander's amazing book, uh, The New Jim Crow, when they talk about dog whistles, um, they're specifically often referencing what at the time was called the Southern strategy, right? So this sort of rethinking and this sort of remarketing um, or rebranding, right, of right supremacy language and lingo. And so from going from we can no longer just flat out call you the N-word to we're going to use something else, right? And so this has been going on for quite some time. And again, these books have written it throughout history. And I think one thing that we, if we look back at 2020, and just like saying this in, in my you know professional capacity at, at this moment, looking back at the language that was happening within the Republican Party in that time, it was very much a rebirth and sort of digitalization of a Southern strategy, right? And so we saw a lot of the exact sort of dehumanization and hateful rhetoric that was just placed within the social media ecosystem. And it had the same repercussions that it has always had, which is death and violence to those who have been othered or those whose humanity has been removed from them and stripped from them in such a way that individuals believe that perpetrating violence on them is okay. Clearly in your analysis, the tech world that we have at the moment is not sufficient to 
the social and political challenges that we face. Are you able to see a different future? You're a relatively young person. This episode, even though it's hard to imagine, you know, may just be one chapter in your career and life. What vision of the future kind of gives you some hope or optimism? We have to hope that there can be a different future. And I, as much as I've been like a doomsday sayer through all of this, I don't think I would be doing this if I didn't believe that there was an alternative available. So one of the things that I have done for fun on the side while working in technology companies is uh, reading, you know, science fiction canon, but a lot of the leaders of technology companies uh, get their inspiration from, right? So I have found myself in a lot of interesting works. And I, I think about, you know, Snow Crash and as an example, I remember reading like the first three pages or something and thinking like, the way that they described a woman's thighs and thinking like, wow, what a world um, that we live in, that we, you know, we have envisioned this new future and there is baked in misogyny right from the beginning, right? Um, and the other thing that I did in, in reading all of these books, I, I went and looked for Black people, right? I went and looked for people that look like me and I wanted to see what futures they possibly had. And I remember reading, you know, books like a strange new, or sorry, strange, strange to me, but a brave new world to some, right? And reading about genetically engineered humans and who are, you know, divided in this sort of caste system and thinking like, where are all the Black people? And shockingly enough, all of the Black people are still inferior within this future, right? And so to me, you know, while all of these things might be innovative, it is, it's, it's, you know, it's still the, the Gene Bradbury effect, right? Where you can think of all of these great new species, but for some reason, all of the Cleons are bat black and they're all hyper aggressive and they all have a problem with violence, right? And so we are replicating these exact same problems that we have within society and we're putting them into our futures. But what gives me hope is reading other sci fi, right? And so I read uh, things from Octavia Butler, I read things from N.K. Jemison, and I see that there are worlds that not only include Black people and queer people and trans people, but these folks are thriving, or they are leading the charge, or they are, you know, the architectural brilliance behind the world that gets saved, right? And I realized that it it matters who is writing the story um, and it matters who is driving the creation of the narrative because it's amazing what can happen when it's open and people are invited and they are, they are, they exist. Right. Um, and I think that we have for so long been creating such a narrow version of history that is being dictated not just by, you know, the straight white male CEOs of Silicon Valley, but the straight white male authors that came before them. And, you know, I think people like me show up to these places and we have different visions and different versions of a society that we are um, looking at. And, you know, I hope uh, that the work that I have done and that the work that others have been able to do have created space within these technologies companies and in the world that we currently live in for people to exist uh, that wouldn't necessarily have had 
um, safety or the ability to exist within these worlds. Is there a sense that it's possible to imagine a future that's more salient than the vision of the future that Silicon Valley is selling at the moment? How do we get there? Uh, I mean, clearly, you know, your voice is one, uh, one of many that's pushing in that direction. But can you see a kind of catalytic moment, another catalytic moment in the future <laughs> where perhaps the, the, the tide turns? I hope so. Again, I, I, I hope something changes it. And I hope that it is not, I hope it's not another January 6th, right? I hope we don't, it doesn't take political violence or, you know, the attempted usurpation of a government in order for us to realize that we need to make change. I fear that we live in a society that is requires something like that. I fear um, for what could come, you know, especially come 2024. You know, I've, I've said I worry that the very, you know, fabric of our society is 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 at risk. Not just you know American democracy, but so many things. Um, and so, I hope that there's a way to make change. Something that is given me hope. You mentioned sci-fi. I'll just randomly tell you this. The thing that has given me hope recently, um, there's a new show on Apple TV called Extrapolation. I don't know if you've seen it, um, but it's all about the sort of visions of what could happen if we don't fix climate change. Um, and so for me, I've been thinking about it and, you know, my world and my field and the sort of what does the world look like in which we we don't fix social media? And it is it's a little horrifying um, to think about, right? And it is it is dystopic, and yet you know, folks like me and so many other whistleblowers and individuals still continue to come forward and to talk and to share our knowledge and our guidance with the hope that we can stave off um, the things that we fear. What's next for you? What are you going to do from here? Well, I am continuing to write. So as I mentioned, I've been doing this for quite some time. And so I've um, been thinking a lot about free expression and, you know, theory um, and in practice and the way that it it falls apart in, in all of those ways. And so I am putting all of those thoughts together, connecting them, thinking about all the things I'm seeing happening around me and um, doing some writing on those things. Um, I'm also, um, you know, doing some speaking and, and continuing to use this public platform that I have um, ended up with in order to continue to tell the truth um, and to shed light um, on a lot of the work that is is happening um, I want to continue to think about these things. Um, I want to continue to teach. Um, teaching is one of my favorite things in the world. Um, and so I'm looking forward to being able to put all of these, you know, pieces together and see where we go. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You could write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guest. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.